0: Welcome to The Republican Professor this afternoon. We have with us Dr. Douglas Grotice. And I'm in California. And Doug, you're in Colorado, I'm
1: in Highlands Ranch, Colorado.
0: I know that area very well, because I'm from Littleton. Right. So uh, Doug is the author of this book, Christian Apologetics, if I can get it for those watching it's uh this is the um first edition and as i open this up i'm going to look and see how many pages it is <laughs> 730 700 and actually more than that seven hundred eight. if you add everything up okay yeah well it's it's a big book and i used this christian apologetics book as a well, first of all, thanks for being here.
1: You're welcome. Good to see you again.
0: <laughs> Before I start talking about books, geez, um, I use this as a textbook at a, in a philosophy of religion course I taught at a government secular college one time. Great. And the students, I gave them a choice. I said, "We could use this. This is a pretty good defense of Christianity. It's about the best you're going to get." Um, and here's the price. And they looked at the price and they compared the price with the other books from the the academic publishers. And they said, we'll take that one. (laughs) Cause I don't know how much it was. I can't remember, but it wasn't really that expensive. I didn't think
1: about $45. Okay. Yeah. For a big academic book. That's not bad at all.
0: No, not at all. And we, you know, we didn't read the whole thing. It was a community college and, um, we did the best we could there. So it was not an, even an upper level undergrad course. It was kind of an, very much an introduction to philosophy so for some of them, it was like their first philosophy class. So mm-hmm. I had to go pretty qu- carefully, Right. but, uh, there's so much in this book and this is our Easter special. So this is going, we're not recording this on Easter, but it's going up easter and i have my easter tie and my pastel colors so but that for example the introduction is called hope despair and knowing reality did you keep that first chapter title the same in the second edition
1: yeah i did and i can hold this up i'm not sure if everybody can see it but this is the second edition of the book that came out about a month ago and it's a bit bigger. It has smaller print, although not too small. And seven new chapters. This one is 839 pages. So I taught the first version for many years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I realized that as big as it was, I had left some things out. So I really? have new chapters in there. right?
0: You went with a different cover. What's the story behind that?
1: Yeah, well, the publisher's give you a selection of possibilities and this one uh is is pretty abstract you've got the circle and the balls going through the circle mm-hmm. i just like the way it looked and then i thought about it a little bit and i thought well that's like the circle of the christian worldview catching and giving direction to the facts of reality
0: oh so, okay whether or not they
1: had that in mind that's what it means now because i have made it mean that <laughs> <laughs> not a good duty, but you know, we'll take it for now.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, this, this book. So I said the first chapter of the first edition. So we got two editions we're talking about. I'm just, I only have the first one, Mm -hmm. but then you have the biblical basis for apologetics, apologetic method. I was really excited about that one. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Christian worldview. Something that uh, st- stands out to me is truth defined and defended. We spent some time on that one. Mm-hmm. Why truth matters most: faith, risk, and rationality. Then you have defense of the Christ- uh, Christian theism, defense of Christian theistic arguments like the ontological argument, the col- the cosmological argument, design argument origins, and Darwinism, that was great. We spent some time on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, Evidence for Intelligent Design, the moral argument, we spent some time in that one. Argument from Religious Experience. Um, Then you have specifically about Jesus, um, a chapter by Craig Blomberg. Is that still in there?
1: Yeah, he revised and updated that.
0: Craig Blomberg. okay.
1: Yeah, reliability of the New Testament, and he's really the best in the world on that topic.
0: There's Your no colleague problem. there at Denver yeah. Seminary.
1: Yeah, he just retired, actually.
0: Yeah. So that's that, cool. Yeah. Well, it's not cool, but it's cool for him. I mean, but yeah. it's not cool he's, for everybody taking
1: classes. <laughs> he'll still keep writing and doing some teaching,
0: I'm sure. Well, that's good. I really should get him to come on here. I wonder yeah. if he would, because he he was a huge influence on me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I think about it, uh, that was mind blowing for the students. I think it was a bit much for them mm-hmm. on that because even Christians have a hard time coming to terms with the historical view of the Bible. Um, I'll give you an example. I was in a Bible study with, uh, a, it's called a community Bible study out here in California. And it's like, meets at Calvary Chapel but it's not just Calvary Chapel people mm-hmm. and uh we're going through revelation <laughs> and and so much of the discussion about revelation is is uh some sometimes the the uh it's just focused on did this already uh is will this happen in the future or will this happen and i i so i just asked the question of well what do you think that meant to the people that were living through the first and second century what do you think they would have heard that (laughs) maybe they were thinking of something else you're thinking of and it just kind of blew them away that we might be missing something totally there in the in the text uh, Mm -hmm. because you're not thinking about it historically Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the resurrection of jesus so uh then you have the problem of evil you have the challenge of islam you have religious pluralism which is, it's all great. I mean, I, I'm just going through this, mm-hmm. and then you have an appendix apologetic issues in the Old Testament. Uh, is that yeah, still the in doc, the old? Is that still yeah. in there?
1: Doctor Hess, Rick Hess, did that, and he revised that also. So all the chapters have been revised, and there's seven new chapters.
0: Wow, what are the new chapters?
1: Uh, well, it's hard to remember all of them actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let
0: me, we let me won't talk. put you on the spot.
1: No, I can go through it. There is.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I can go through what I have here. There's uh, two chapters on the atoning work of Christ. That's very significant. There's a chapter defending the church. There's a chapter introducing the credibility of the idea of miracles. That's right before the resurrection chapter. And then there's a chapter called Lament as Christian Apologetic. There's one Doubt, Skepticism, and the Hiddenness of God. And there's another one on original monotheism. I didn't go in order, but those are the new ones. And even though the book was quite big to start with, as I taught it year after year at Denver Seminary and other places, I realized that there was still more to say. And I I really started with, in defense of the church, because I realized that most Protestant apologetics books only glancingly mention the church, if at all. And my first edition said almost nothing about it. But Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So to defend Christianity without defending the institution that Christ himself set up is certainly incomplete at best. So I've got a chapter defending the church and how the church can be an apologetic, give an apologetic for the church. Uh, I'm also excited about these two chapters on the atoning work of Christ. Because in the first edition, I only had maybe four or five pages on the death of Christ. It was mostly the person of Christ, that he was divine and human, worked miracles, and so on, rose from the dead. But I realized that the doctrine of salvation, what Christ did, to redeem us, to save us, to atone our sins, for our sins, uh, is, of course, a vitally important doctrine. There's quite a bit of apologetic discussion about it. Some people reject it as divine child abuse or want to leave out the idea that Christ somehow took our punishment. They, They think that's cruel or not fitting for God to have to deal with his wrath through a vicarious substitute. So I did a lot of work on that. It was about 50, 60 pages, I guess. And I learned a tremendous amount. And I went back and looked at some of the challenges to the atonement, like Sosinus and some of the contemporary new atheist attacks on it and so on. So I'm really happy that that's in there because it really beefs up the Christology of the book because I've got uh, reliability of the New Testament, defend the resurrection, talk about the claims and credentials of Jesus. I defend the logical coherence of the idea of the incarnation, the God-man. And then I've got these two chapters on the work of Christ. So uh, I think that's a significant addition to the book. The book was a little top-heavy on natural theology and prolegomena previously. So now I've got this big extra material there not extra but vital material there on the atonement which i think really fills out the book a lot and makes it better
0: would you say that that material on the atonement is is uh related to the problem of evil or
1: yeah it is because when i deal with the problem of evil i address the fact that god has revealed his justice and his love through the work of christ and then he has in fact Decisively triumphed over sin and Satan through, um, and hell through the resurrection. So, I think they all fit together. What I wanted to do with this book is give one long, logically structured argument. The book is very big. You look at it, and you might yeah. think, well, maybe it's a dictionary, maybe it's an encyclopedia. It's not, it's not. Norm Geisler has a big encyclopedia of apologetics. So it has different entries, but mine has chapters. It has what, 30, 30 some chapters. Let me see here.
0: You had 26 plus two appendixes. Yeah.
1: Now it's 32
0: plus the original one. Okay. 34,
1: 34 plus the conclusion. But anyway, it's one long argument. So that's what Charles Darwin said about origin of the species of origin of species. So mine is one long argument for the Christian message. So I do a lot of initial work is apologetics, even a biblical pursuit. Some people are fedious; They don't think we should even try to defend Christianity. So I give an apologetic for apologetics. Yeah. you with truth.
0: That's good. <laughs> they,
1: yeah. I imagine somebody who picks up this monster is going to say, I think apologetics is important, but some people have to be.
0: Convinced. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right.
1: You know, some people say we should preach the gospel, not defend it, and that's a classic mm-hmm. false dichotomy fallacy. Mm-hmm. We do both.
0: Right. Well, uh, are there any pictures in it? <laughs> that's I, that's what I first thing I look for is a pictures. That's what my wife said
1: when she when we got it. <laughs> she looked through it. Is there any pictures? There's a, there's precisely one chart. <laughs> The there's chapter,
0: no uh, you, so you're so. saying there's no facts, there's no pie graphs, there's no scatter plots, there's no yeah. statistics, there's no science in it.
1: Oh, there's science, plenty <laughs> of science. You no know, graphs and charts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Quite a bit of science in the two chapters on intelligent design and yes, Darwinism, and also in the fine-tuning argument, a lot of uh, material from astronomy, cosmology, physics, things like that.
0: There's a lot here and you're going to find something that jumps out at you. Um, I remember when I was deciding whether I was going to teach that philosophy religion class or not, Mm -hmm. it was at a very inconvenient time for me. And it was a big sacrifice to teach that class. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting down on my knees and it was about four thirty in the morning. It was about the time I would have to leave to teach the class.
1: Oh my!
0: Well, not not four thirty. It would be that time that I'd have to get up uh, if I was going to leave on time because of traffic and stuff like that. And it was across the it was across the uh, Southern California wasteland. Um, and I remember looking up at your book because i was i had it on a a certain bookshelf and it just happened to be in front of me Hmm. i did not have the idea to use that book up until Hmm. that moment and i thought uh well actually i didn't even know if i had enough students in the class to be honest with you i was going to drive up there and i was i was kind of unsure whether I didn't, I kind of thought it's probably not going to go anyway. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact situation, but it was something where I had to actually drive there to find out whether there were going to be enough students in the class. Mm-hmm. Cause they had rescheduled it. I think that's what it was. They had rescheduled it at the last minute and they made it a late start class. I think that's what it was. Well, anyway, um, I remember looking up at your book and I thought to myself, if I can use that book as an anchor text, I'll teach the class, but otherwise I don't, I'm not interested in going through it. So I took the book down from the shelf and I thought I will just pitch this to the students. And then we'll obviously have some other readings for them to, to as they say, balance out the material, but I was taking a big risk because the risk was that, um, it was gonna, people were going to accuse me of being biased or whatever, but I thought, well, that can be useful sometimes just, just say, yeah, this is my bias. Um, but I'm not saying you have to agree with me and just figure out a way to do the assignment somehow where they, they actually believe that. Well, anyway, um, I went there, there were barely enough students. I met the students, I pitched them the idea for the class, and they stuck around. <laughs> they used your book. So it's probably the only time in California history that Christian apologetics was used as an anchor text in the philosophy of religion for a, a non-Christian probably school. So. Yeah. And... Um, and I, I got a lot of uh, feedback. I thought I got a, some pretty good feedback. Some people didn't like it, but, uh, but they didn't like it, be, not because they thought the book was bad. They just, I don't think they were ready for school. I just don't think they're ready for school. Academically, it was tough for them, I think. so. But we started with like whether truth exists. And I know that's a big thing for you. You've written about that.
1: Yeah, if you want to defend Christianity as the true religion, you have to talk about what truth is. And I've got two main chapters on that, one on the definition of truth, defending what's called the correspondence view of truth, and then another on the value of truth. Sadly, we have to defend both things today, because for many people, truth is a matter of subjective orientation, and it's not a matter of objective facts. So we've got to defend that a true statement is one that correlates or corresponds with reality. That's commonsensical. We use that. I was
0: going to say, that sounds like common sense.
1: Yeah, it is. But when you get to religion and philosophy, people sometimes lose half their intelligence. And sadly, they shouldn't with philosophy. But, you know, they think especially with religion, if you believe something, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or you mix them together or something else, then that's true for you. So we've got to talk about objective truth claims, Mm -hmm. how truth claims come together into worldviews, how you test worldviews. So you have to do a fair amount of setup work, yes, even to engage in profitable discussion about the truth or falsity of Christianity in relation to other worldviews.
0: When you say the correspondence theory of truth, it sounds so academic-y, it sounds so it doesn't sound common sense. It doesn't sound like that's the street level, uh, gut level react. Uh, what am I trying to say? The pre-theoretic understanding of truth. It sounds very theoretical, and and yeah. and it has sounds like it has a lot of baggage or something like some PhD came up with that, piled high and deep. But yeah, right. but it's really it, it really is a commonsensical. Mm-hmm. way of understanding truth
1: well as you know philosophers can make anything complicated but <laughs> it is supposed to make things simpler really can Where, you give
0: an another example of of how philosophers can take something that's not really that complicated and make it complicated
1: well you know some we,
0: people say that but then it turns out that it actually is complicated
1: oh yeah <laughs> it works it works that way too but I'd say yeah. our basic moral intuitions are clearly true. But you've got people who come along like Frederick Nietzsche or Richard Rorty or something and, and say, no, there is no objective moral reality. I and mean, they have other ways of explaining it. But you know, with the correspondence view, it's both pre-theoretical and theoretically justifiable. Yeah. Because when you go in to see a physician, you want to know the state of your body. You know, do I have glaucoma? Do I, do I have skin cancer? You know, what's going on? You want the truth. You want the facts. And truth claims really work like that. So if you ask the question, is there a God, that's very similar to, do I have diabetes? I mean, is it yes? It's a yes or a no. Now, the way that you verify that or the way you discuss it is different. And when you're talking philosophical claims, it's much more involved than maybe a simple biopsy or a simple test on your eyes or something like that. The religions of the world have always presented themselves as objectively true and Mm -hmm. compellingly important. So, I mean, go to Buddhism. Buddhism is based on the four noble truths, uh, not the four noble therapeutic ideas that may help you get through a crisis. You know, it's, these are the four noble truths about reality. So then those are out there, and you test them. You see if they make sense. Mm. Christianity makes truth claims about God, the human condition, the meaning of morality, uh, the soul, so many things.
0: That's what I love about doing this particular topic on Easter, Mm. because the older I get, the more I appreciate Easter. And I really liked it as a kid. Did you celebrate Easter as a kid?
1: Well, I didn't really become a Christian until I was 19, so...
0: So no not, Easter for you? Not
1: a big deal in our family, no.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Wow. That's so the so opposite of the way that I grew up. <laughs> to me, for in our family, Easter was a huge deal. And I'm not saying I understood it, <laughs> but I understand as a kid, the colors stand out to me springtime and the Rockies. Well, we weren't in the Rockies, but we were, you know, Littleton, right there on the edge of the Rocky Mountains. And Mm -hmm. just the birds and the, the chocolate and the eggs. Mm -hmm. And then later, you know, we went to church and that was always like people, I just remember how people dressed Mm -hmm. and I remember the church made it a big deal. And I remember that. Um, And then as I grew up, I was like, well, this is kind of a big deal. This is a big deal.
1: Certainly (laughs) the last
0: two years we were shut down on Easter. Mm -hmm because people were afraid of the virus Mm -hmm. and there was a public health panic. Right. And I thought it was a little ironic given that it's a, it's a, I'm not saying we, that was wrong, not saying that, but I'm just saying, I just thought it was ironic that, that this, this celebration of, of Jesus resurrecting from the dead Mm -hmm. was shut down and um it, it to me it felt like we didn't really take the the uh holiday seriously mm. Maybe, and i i might be missing something and i'm fully aware of that so i i don't i'm not criticizing anybody i just um it just to me it was it was a painful thing for me i was lamenting Right. And I know that you appreciate a good lament. That's right. yeah. <laughs> well, you said, you said that you had a new chapter on lament. Yeah. Uh, and I did you say a, a lament as apologetic? is apologetic? That- right.
1: That's after my chapter on the problem of evil.
0: So. Oh, okay. The
1: problem of evil is a philosophical problem. Basically squaring these propositions. God is all good. God is all powerful. And there is a lot of evil in the world. Yeah. So. The basic approach I take to that one is the greater good defense that whatever evil God allows, he does so for achieving a greater good that would not be possible otherwise. And then so, as I mentioned, yeah. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was gonna say no, I didn't want to cut you off, but I was gonna ask what how does how did you get the idea for lament and apologetics? Because I don't I hope- think a lot of people have that. In their apologetics no, book. It's
1: kind of a switch because we we think that the problem of evil is a terrible philosophical obstacle hmm. to defending Christianity. I don't think it is. I think it's a very significant problem, but that Christianity best accounts for God, good and evil of any worldview. But more than that, it gives us the resources to suffer well because sin has entered the world.
0: That's a key idea. Suffer yeah. well.
1: Yeah, we, suffer, we can suffer well because suffer our well. Well on the cross and throughout his life, actually. So I wrote a, a book about uh, losing my first wife, Rebecca Merrill-Grotheis, called Walking Through Twilight. And that book is a Lament. The subtitle is A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. But I realized after a while that lament is not only a way to respond to suffering and grief in the world, before God, but that if you suffer well, if you know how to deal with disappointment and loss, it is a testimony to the goodness of God in the midst of that suffering. So one test of a worldview is how does it address the issue of evil, but then also how does it address the, the question of uh, living virtuously in a world of suffering? So, for example, uh, compare Buddhism and Christianity. The first noble truth of Buddhism is life is suffering. It's not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. His life is suffering. And the ultimate Buddhist answer is to escape this world by ceasing to care about anything. Uh,
0: if someone doesn't know anything about Buddhism, would they be able to read this book and get the basics? Like uh, what yeah, the, difference, you have, the differences are between yeah, Christianity have, and Buddhism?
1: a section in the in the chapter on religious pluralism where I compare um, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. I believe, yeah, that's, that's very helpful. That okay, chapter.
0: Buddhism, but, Islam, and Christianity, okay.
1: So in that chapter, I'm trying to show that religions are not all the same. Some people say all religions. Right, <laughs> yeah. They teach very different things. But I mean, take a Buddhist idea of suffering Suffering is based on desire, so the answer to suffering is to cease desire and eventually leave this world and enter or attain nirvana. Well, the Christian answer is extremely different because Jesus came uh, to live a perfect life in our place and to die the death that we deserve. So when Jesus is on the cross atoning for our sin, he he quotes a psalm of lament, Psalm 22 and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus gives us a model of redemptive suffering, that suffering is unto something better. But we do really suffer because we desire things, like I desired Becky to get well, and she did. not She got dementia and died. But through the Christian message, uh, the message of creation, fall, and redemption, and then the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, uh, you can find meaning in the midst of suffering. You can't find the ultimate reason for it often, but you can find enough meaning to muddle through. And then also hope uh, beyond. I used to read to Becky texts from the scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead and Revelation 21 and 22 about the new heavens and the new earth. Where there's no tears, no pain, no suffering and that would fortify us. And it wasn't just wishful thinking because we had both worked.
0: See, that's where I was going to ask you is you take this seriously? You take the resurrection seriously. When we say the resurrection, it's not some myth, uh <clears throat> It's not, it's, would you say literal? How would you use the, how would you describe the resurrection? Physical? Well,
1: certainly it's historical. So it happened in space sure. and time. Jesus died on the cross. He was executed by the, roman government they knew how to kill people he was dead he was buried (laughs) yeah yeah there's this crazy theory that he didn't really die on the cross some muslims believe that some new agers believe that anyway he died he was buried
0: the same kind of history you're talking about is like george washington crossed the delaware
1: exactly Exactly. gotcha yeah caesar crossed the rubicon uh you know yeah whatever you want to say it's
0: not a special different (laughs) use of the word history okay so you're you're saying, this is a big deal.
1: <laughs> yeah, he died. He was buried. The tomb was empty. He appeared over a forty day period to numerous people, to his disciples. Uh, Paul yeah. says in First Corinthians fifteen, at one time he appeared to over five hundred people at once, some of whom are still living. Yeah. So. Christianity really sticks its neck out on history. It doesn't say, well, let's believe that God can overcome evil and spring is a good time to have happy thoughts.
0: (laughs) Is that a good thing or a bad thing that it sticks its neck out on history?
1: It's good because it means this is fact. This is reality.
0: It's falsifiable. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Paul says that. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. So if you come up with a really powerful argument that christ never rose from the dead christianity is falsified but i'm not worried about that because uh, yeah
0: so you're not worried about that i think some people somebody's listening to this in the future maybe and saying that's uh you're saying it's falsifiable that's pretty risky so what if i read your book and i'm not convinced
1: i mean then my faith
0: (laughs) is in jeopardy
1: Well, I can't guarantee everybody is going to be convinced, but I'm just appealing to the Apostle Paul here, basically, Yeah. that it happened in history, and if it didn't happen, Christianity has nothing going for it. In fact, we're deceiving people. We have no hope. Those that have died are still dead, etc. He lays it all out. But the good news is that there are plenty of strong evidence that the resurrection indeed happened. And I've tried to follow all the alternative explanations over the years. And they don't work. They fail. They're fanciful. They're desperate. Mm -hmm. So I've got a big chapter in the book on the resurrection of Jesus. So basically the way it works is that if Christ rose from the dead, this explains the faith of the early church. This explains the coherence of the New Testament. So let's just take the resurrection out okay, well, then how did the church get started? Why did it go around teaching the resurrection of a crucified Jewish criminal if he didn't rise from the dead? Well, would they make it up? There'd be no reason for them to make it up. It wouldn't benefit them. Could they have somehow been deceived that he rose from the dead when he really didn't? Well, that doesn't make much sense either. Uh, You don't have group hallucinations. You don't have hallucinations all over the place. So that's a real quick and dirty kind of summary, but the explanation we have in the scripture makes the most sense. And yeah. if you take that out, you take out the resurrection, Christ died, he was buried, that's it. Then you can't explain the Gospels. You can't explain the rest of the New Testament. You can't explain the faith of the early church. You can't explain why at least a few of the apostles were martyred for what they believed. They were not all martyred, but some were. So it just yeah. gives the best account.
0: You say it's falsifiable. That's a good thing. Then that means that, but you say the good news is that the evidence. Well, when you say it's falsifiable, it means that evidence is important. Exactly. And it's not, it's not irrelevant. In other words, it's, it's actually kind of important for you to look at the evidence, which is kind of why you wrote the book and one of yeah, the maybe. streams of evidence yeah. is history and you're exactly. using scripture well you're using terms like apostle and scripture and these are kind of technical terms like within christian doctrine but you mean that the this is a evidential source in the same way that a document any other document in history would be a source of evidence
1: in that sense right the new testament especially but the old testament as well is a collection of historical documents about about people events activities and if we're focusing on christ he was a historical person who taught certain things accomplished certain things worked miracles died on the cross rose from the dead and so Christianity, you could say, is a cosmic religion. It talks about the creation and design of everything. But it's also a historical religion because God is interested in human beings that he made in his own image and likeness. And so much so that uh, God became a human being in order to demonstrate truth perfectly and to set us right with himself. That's the Christian claim. The word became flesh and dwelt among us.
0: So you have christian faith i do too but i'm you're the focus of our our time here you've spent so much time on this and effort and energy and time teaching this you you, you, do you think that we can know christianity is true that we can know know that i'm using the term no the same ordinary way that people use the term no i'm not changing the meaning
1: Yes, I think you can know that it's true, and I understand knowledge to be justified true belief. So, do you,
0: do you think it, that God wants us to know it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, doesn't that yeah. doesn't that preclude faith?
1: No, like, what, because wouldn't,
0: wouldn't he just rather us have faith?
1: Well, I think biblically, faith and knowledge are not contrasted. I think faith has certain elements. One is knowing what it is we should believe. And then second ascent, believing it. And then also trusting, you know, entrusting ourselves to God. And so scripture doesn't contrast faith with knowledge. It contrasts faith with sight. So we walk by faith, not by sight. But you can have a, what you might call a justifiable faith in something you've never seen. I mean, I've never seen your soul, but I believe you have one. I've never seen subatomic particles, but I believe they exist. Uh, I've never seen God, but I have tremendously good reason to believe that God exists. I didn't see the empty tomb myself, but there are good reasons to believe the tomb of Jesus was empty. Mm -hmm. So faith doesn't have to mean something opposed to knowledge. I think biblically, faith is really entrusting yourself to the one who has shown himself to be trustworthy. And that does not exclude the intellect. It doesn't exclude knowing.
0: It doesn't exclude it. So then it includes it? It includes knowledge?
1: Well, you know, it can get a little tricky, Lucas, because you might have uh, someone who converts and they don't know much of anything about the Bible, apologetics, but the Holy Spirit spoke to them and they have faith in Christ. They have saving faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. But perhaps at that point they can't do a whole lot to justify their faith. So, do they have knowledge at that point? I think they probably you do. You don't mean I
0: justify don't by you know the way Paul uses justification. You mean it? No, I mean
1: know. I mean uh, intellectual justification.
0: Okay, so like evidence, giving evidence, right?
1: Okay, right. But I do think the Holy Spirit can provide a kind of internal evidence for faith, and that's a big issue too. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit, and then how does that relate to evidences like for the resurrection or natural theology and things like that. But if we're really going to make Christianity an issue in the world, and we should because it's so significant for time and eternity, I think we have to work in the area of knowledge, and the area of giving arguments and dealing with objections, because Christianity was never meant to be left in a private, personal subjective realm mm. it's too significant too important to leave so it we're at.
0: not just supposed to keep it to ourselves and just be good neighbors and <clears throat> i mean if there's really evidence and you know about it you would share it if it was about anything else right
1: yeah exactly yeah this is the best news you can imagine and it's not just giving a report it is that it is news but it's giving a report and then having the reasons to back it up. If Your neighbor says, you know, well, if that is interesting to you, great, but I don't even know if there's a God. Well, then let's give some arguments for God's existence Or someone says, I believe in God, but I don't, I don't really know who Jesus is. Then Hmm. tell them about Jesus, the liability of scripture and his miracles and his death and his resurrection.
0: So there's different levels. There's, there's, what, what do you think the first step is like if you're in conversation with somebody and they want to have a conversation, so you're not forcing this to happen. I don't think you can force it anyway, but because people can walk away <laughs> um, and, and, <laughs> and it's illegal to make them That's stay. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Well, even if you could make them stay, does I don't think that they, that means that they would listen necessarily. You can't make them listen. I don't think Right. so, but assuming that you have somebody that's willing to discuss this and is, is a curious presence there and you find out, well, what do you first ask? I mean, what do you, how do you know which level of level to go here? Where do you go?
1: Get to know somebody a little bit and then find out what their beliefs are. And go from there. There are multiple points of entry. Uh, someone might be a nihilist. I had a student years ago who was a nihilist. What's and that? he took a
0: class uh, in case somebody no, yeah. doesn't know what that is. Yeah,
1: yeah. Someone who thinks life has no meaning, everything is without purpose. Uh, it's a pretty pretty dark view, ultimately. Yeah. But this guy took a class that I was teaching on the Christian worldview, and so I I said, Matt, what how would you feel if I told you that your parents had both been brutally murdered in the middle of the night last night? And I was trying to get a moral response that something is absolutely wrong. And I could tell by his expression that he was quite bothered by this, but then he had to kind of write himself and realize he was a nihilist. So he said, well, you know, I couldn't really judge anybody because nothing has any meaning and I don't know why they did it. Mm -hmm. I said, Matt, you, your gut knows better than that. You know, so with that, I was doing a kind of existential shock therapy, so to speak. But let's say someone, you know, uh, believes in God, uh, but they're not quite sure what they think about Jesus. Then you start with Jesus or maybe someone has an entirely different worldview. I was talking to a, a woman that had a Hindu worldview a couple of years ago, and we got onto to the differing views of Jesus. Was Jesus a guru or was he God incarnate?
0: Is there yeah. enough about Hinduism in here for people to read about that okay: Yeah there is Yeah.
1: The, the way that I do apologetics is that I try to keep Christianity in a discussion with other worldviews So like in the problem of evil, I'll say, well, how does an atheist deal with evil? how does a pantheist deal with the evil? How does a Muslim deal with evil? How does a Christian deal with evil so
0: and all I these try term, to keep all these terms are defined. Okay is there a glossary there is yeah (laughs) be of good cheer if you don't know these terms (laughs) like it it might maybe somebody in the future is listening to this and they're thinking i am tracking with you for the most part i i can't believe you said we can know and god wants us to know the that christianity is true and um but it seems like it's a lot of work and it, I'm not sure if I can, I'm smart enough or I'm not sure if I can understand this.
1: You don't have to read this book to know Christianity is true. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> uh, come to Christ entrust yourself to him, follow him, read the scriptures, be involved with other Christians, develop your mind. Scripture says, be transformed to the renewing of your mind. And first uh, Peter three says to have a reason within you for the hope that you have. So that has to do with apologetics, but how many people really are going to be philosophers or professional apologists? Not many, but you know, be up right. to speak the best you can, whatever your setting is. Let's say you find out your neighbor is uh, a Buddhist and you want to talk about them, uh, talk with them about Christ, then you should bone up a little bit on Buddhism and talk about the difference between Jesus and Buddha, things like that and do apologetics from that basis. But if you have just a second, let me tell you a little story about how I got got
0: We got plenty of time on our side. Yeah, there's no rush on our side.
1: Okay. So uh, right before I became a Christian, this was in Anchorage, Alaska, I went out and hiked a mountain, a pretty easy mountain to hike outside of Anchorage called Flat Top. And
0: I'm so glad you didn't say Mount McKinley.
1: No, 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 no. (laughs) This is a simple one.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, no
1: fear. No. So, I was climbing the mountain with this friend of mine named John, and I was thinking about becoming a Christian. And he said, Doug, if you become a Christian, you will spend time with Christian people. You'll read Christian books. You'll go to a church, and you'll lose your intellectual credibility.
0: Mm.
1: And I spent the last forty-five years refuting my friend John. Mm. Because I became a Christian and I basically studied every alternative you can imagine to Christianity for the last 45 years. And I've written about it Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age thinking, atheism, Islam, Marxism. Uh, And I've had the time and the ability to do it. I thank God for that. And very few people have that opportunity. But that really stuck with me. I thought, wait a minute, if I'm committing to Christ, and I knew I was at a fork in the road where God was calling me, I wanted to make sure it was true. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to interact with people who are not believers. So I got my degree uh, from the University of Oregon in philosophy. Then I did five years of campus ministry at the University of Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. Very secular, very liberal place. Oh yeah. And I taught a class on campus defending Christianity. I went to New Age events. I handed out tracts. I talked to people. So that has really been as a philosopher, as a Christian philosopher, has been my one of my greatest passions is really defending and applying the Christian message. That's actually the whole thing. I mean, that's wow. That's what I one way or the other.
0: Okay. So Let's go back to when you were nineteen. You said you converted at nineteen. I did. You didn't have the resources of a Christian family behind you for at least some kind of basic stuff. Did you? Were you biblically literate at all at that time?
1: No, I wasn't. Um, okay. I was um, raised by two parents who I'd say were God-fearing people, but they weren't attenders at church. My My father died when I was very young. When I was 11, he had a Protestant background. My mother had a Catholic background, Mm -hmm. but I went to Sunday school very infrequently, but we were taught, I was taught, I was the only child that you should pray their basic moral truths and so on. But that was about
0: it. So would you describe it as anti-intellectual, the background that you had? No. Okay.
1: So you didn't have
0: that going against you. No. Would you say that you were curious?
1: Yeah, especially in high school. I got interested in religion and philosophy.
0: How did your conversion take place? What what was it?
1: Yes, well, um, I can pick it up my freshman year in college. I went from Anchorage, Alaska to Greeley, Colorado, University of Northern Colorado, because they had a good journalism program. And I thought I would be a journalist because I was Involved in my high school newspaper. I like to see my name in print and things like that. <laughs> so uh, I went to UNC and was a journalism major, but I got quite interested in philosophy. Took uh, several philosophy classes. I took a class on India and China, the wisdom of India and China. So I was wow. quite interested in Buddhism and Hinduism.
0: Was this Christian, or was this before you were? No, Christian? this would be before. Okay. Yeah, this
1: would be before. So I had one year of college before I became a Christian. And I got very influenced and interested in uh, atheism, actually. Wow. Uh, Particularly Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. And I took a class on modern philosophy. And we also had to read a Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Hmm. And I read part of one of his books, The Sickness Unto Death, which is about sin, basically. And that book really unmasked me as uh, a rebel against God. And it it haunted me. And I went back to Anchorage after my first year of college, and about half of my friends had converted to Christianity and half had not. And I came back kind of in the middle. And I spent a lot of time uh, with both sets of friends, but especially with my Christian friends. And through talking with them, reading scripture, through some strange experiences that showed me that God was after me. Um, I confessed Christ as Lord in a, a group of folks, probably May of 1976 and was baptized shortly after that.
0: How long after that did you think I'm going to major in philosophy and how did you integrate that yeah. with your new conversion?
1: Well, I, I continued to be a journalism major for another year,
0: at at UNC Greeley.
1: No, actually, I went to University of Oregon after that. I switched to University of Oregon, and then I, after my second year, I switched to philosophy as my major. And uh, the reason I switched mostly was because to be a journalism major at the University of Oregon, you had to pass a typing test on a manual typewriter,
0: (laughs) and I couldn't pass. (laughs) That's why.
1: That's so I switched to philosophy. I thought I'm pretty good at that. I like it. So I'll switch to philosophy major. <laughs> hmm.
0: Didn't you have to type your papers though for yeah, philosophy?
1: it wasn't timed.
0: I mean, oh, I Oh, gotcha. Could gotcha. Fast enough. Yeah. Oh, interesting.
1: You had to type, I don't know, 35 words a minute on a manual typewriter. I, I couldn't quite do it.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So the classes you took as an undergrad, were they, how would you characterize those? The philosophy classes.
1: Well, none of them were, or almost none of them were taught by Christians. So I really had to develop my Christian worldview and apologetics on my own.
0: That's a lot of pressure for a young kid. Yeah, it is. I mean, I call you a kid. You were like 20, but I still call them kids. So now, what? as you look back on that, was God just helping you or what? How did you... How did you get through that?
1: Certainly. Well, I I got very good recommendations on what to read. So I started reading C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, Oz Guinness, uh, Jim Sire, people that were very good at apologetics worldview.
0: Um, There was enough in there to handle like modern philosophy.
1: Well, it certainly helped. It helped. So I had what I call parallel curriculum. I had what I had to know for my education at a secular school, and then I developed a Christian response to that mostly with the reading that I would come up with myself. Like uh mere Christianity, abolition of man, problem of pain, those are C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaefer, the God who is there, he is there, he's not silent, uh, James Sire, the universe next door. I didn't, and I, had Sire, some
0: very I didn't know Sire's book goes that far back.
1: Huh. Yeah, that came out in 76, really? first edition. Wow. I didn't so know I read that. the first yeah. edition.
0: Um, now, who's telling you about these books?
1: Uh, people I knew at church or people I met at University of Oregon.
0: So you had smart people at church.
1: <laughs> I had some very smart people, and I just started to love reading in books
0: after I converted. Yeah. I grew up in an, an anti-intellectual church in Denver, mm. and I don't know that anybody knew these. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I ever heard these names ever. And mm. I, the, the, the feeling I got and, and, you know, there's, there's, there's anti-intellectuals outside of the church as well. Uh I see them all the time on the colleges campuses. Uh So it's not just a problem of the church, but, Man, I, I I'm really that that's really great that you had this this background. I'm amazed that you found a good church. Well, you we're a philosophy major, so you probably were looking for a good church. What was the name of your church at that time?
1: Well, I I went to a church called First Baptist Church. Oh. It was a conservative Baptist church. And the the <laughs> preacher there for the first two years was a guy named uh Jack MacArthur, who was John MacArthur's father and he really wow he <laughs> preached very powerful messages he did a whole series about wow. cults and non-religions and dealing with them biblically and apologetically
0: how close is he to his son as far as like the method and the style and pretty i think somewhat
1: similar they were both uh, dr jack as we called him was very forceful wow. and was not afraid to take stands against what he thought wasn't true wow yeah but he would and... preach an hour every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday uh, service, and we would always go and listen to him. I learned so much. I mean, he, was, he had some views now that I wouldn't hold to for sure. <laughs> but, like, this, this is serious Christianity. You believe the Bible, you teach the Bible, and if a religion or a, a philosophy disagrees with it, well, then that's why they're wrong. So I'm so glad that I really came up under that kind of teaching. Forceful, clear, intelligent,
0: I'm learning and, stuff about your background. I never knew, and yeah. I've known you for a long time. That's right. I, yeah. When you said that you were talking about your first wife, mm-hmm. Becky, I remember her. I remember her coming into metaphysics, which, which for those of you listening, I had Doug as a professor. Yeah, right. uh, metaphysics was my first seminary class ever. I think. <laughs> Well, maybe it was, it was one of the, it was the first semester anyway. And she, she came in and, and you had an idea to talk about gender back then and the metaphysics of gender. And she came in and, and uh, gave us her thoughts about that. And I, I, I remember, I don't think I'd ever thought about that stuff before, yeah. And I just remember how, how incredibly bright she was to be able to hang with you and your discussion of these these topics and she seemed to know exactly what you were talking about um and so when when later i found out about her her chronic illness and then later her um the the struggle that you guys had and that you had when she died Mm -hmm. i just I followed that very carefully. I haven't gotten your book yet on the, on the lament it's on my list to get um, when I get it and flip through it, I might have to have you come back on and talk about that because I thought the way you handled it, the, I think I wrote something down, suffer well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But so <clears throat> I've known you for a while and I'm, I'm just now learning about Jack Uh <laughs> Jack MacArthur, yeah. MacArthur, yeah. So <laughs> then you did your master's degree, uh, and you did your PhD, but you didn't do them at the same place. Um, what's the story with that? You went to
1: yeah. I basically Madison. did the wrong way, so don't follow me. My- <laughs> yeah, I got into uh, University of Wisconsin Madison, which uh, was a very good school. Yeah, study with Keith yandel who's one of the best analytic philosophers. But I did pretty well there, but I just got tired of graduate school and I went back into campus ministry for several years in Seattle. And then I realized I need a PhD in philosophy, Mm. but I didn't want to go back to Madison. And I had a lot of history in Eugene and Becky really wanted to go to Eugene. So that's where I got my PhD. But I actually went from a better school to a lesser school for my PhD, which you're never supposed to do, but... (laughs) somehow I I got a gig 30 years ago that I still have, so.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned a conservative Baptist church, and I I smiled because at that time, Denver Seminary was called Denver Conservative Baptist Seminary, I think it was Uh called, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's how it started, because there was a a rift in the Baptists back in the late 40s, where some of them went liberal, and some of them stayed conservative, and the conservatives became the conservative Baptist denomination. And our school was officially conservative Baptist up until I think about the late nineties. And then um, we became more generally evangelical. So we're not, we have not been officially a conservative Baptist school for quite a while.
0: I notice a lot of Baptists are dropping the name Baptist. Like I got married at, i um, not supposed to say the name of my wife on this, but I got married uh, um, at, at Riverside Baptist Church, which is a big Baptist church in Denver, and 16. I just recently found out they dropped the name Baptist. They call it Riverside Church now. Oh, really? I went to a Baptist college for undergrad, Wayland Baptist University in Hawaii, and um they proudly still say Baptist out there. So I was like, okay, that's good. That's good. Um, But then the Baptist church that I went to out there, International Baptist Church uh, on Honolulu, right off the Pauley Highway there, if you know Honolulu, um, they dropped the name Baptist too. So I don't understand. That was a conservative Baptist church too. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know, I guess uh, it's, I kind of prefer those things, but There's always so many splits. How do you deal with um, just how complicated church history is and trying to keep up with all that stuff? And does that ever bother you? (laughs) How how contentious church history has been?
1: Yeah, we wish that it would be a lot simpler. But at this point in my life, I've had a lot of experience with different kinds of churches. And I know what I believe and why I'm an evangelical Anglican. I have been for about 15 years. It's part of a movement called the Anglican Mission in North America.
0: We're, and a, part of, we're a part of that, too. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah we're out here. But they dropped the word Anglican from our church. Oh, really? Like, I can't get away from it. These, these People are running away from heritage. I, I don't understand.
1: Yeah. It's called Trinity Anglican Church so oh, they're, How
0: lovely! We're not do you still do you on. have the liturgy? How liturgical is it? Sure, yeah. Ugh, historically jealous! So jealous! Yeah. So jealous. Um,
1: Palm Sunday was today. I have my little.
0: Yeah. Did you um, wave the palms?
1: Oh yeah, sure. We start outside. We so have the liturgy, and yeah. In fact, uh, Kathleen and I uh, were just uh, we went through a confirmation class, the Anglican confirmation class. Wow. A few months ago, uh, which is about seven weeks, so.
0: This is your new wife. Yes, second wife,
1: wife. Kathleen. Yeah. Uh, we got married about three and a half years ago.
0: Congratulations. It's very to hear I was so glad to hear about that. So I mean, just after seeing <clears throat> that struggle for so many years and just uh I just couldn't imagine. I don't know how you got through that.
1: Yeah. Well
0: now you you uh you've taught at Denver Seminary since nineteen ninety
1: three. That's right. Yeah.
0: What kind of t- courses do you teach there for everybody listening? Everybody well, knows you there, teach metaphysics now, but you No, also... I did. Oh, um, you don't teach it anymore?
1: Well, you, you know, you when you were there for a while, we had a uh, philosophy of religion master's degree.
0: Oh, okay. And now,
1: <clears throat> excuse me, we have an apologetics and ethics degree. So we actually dropped the philosophy of religion degree about 2011. Oh. So I don't teach metaphysics, epistemology, philosophical ethics anymore. But I teach a class called apologetics and ethics, religious pluralism. You used class-
0: to teach oh. a Christianity and modern culture. You used to teach religious pluralism. Um, you taught another one that was a big one for MDiv people. Christianity and modern Probably. culture.
1: I'll be defending Christian faith. That was the whole class. That, that.
0: that one too. But it seems like it was another one. It was like, um, maybe it was something on pluralism or something. Maybe it was pluralism. It seems like it was a well, different yeah. one. But. Since
1: you were around, we've had two curriculum changes.
0: So Okay. Things change. So it's a little bit yeah. tough to keep up with.
1: Yeah. Now I do apologetics and ethics. That's one class. Religious pluralism. I do a class on C.S. Lewis. I do a class uh, writing for publication for my students that want to become writers and authors. Um, do a class on Blaise Pascal once in a while.
0: Oh, yeah, you, took, you, you had that class for a while there. Um, there was a, a question I asked you before we started recording, which is how many books you have, because everybody can see all those books if you're watching. Yeah. But if you're listening, he has a lot of books behind him. Mm-hmm. How many books do you have? Now, in I don't
1: really know. I'd say at least... <clears throat> Seven or eight thousand, something like that. Wow. And I've been weeding them out a little bit, not much, but uh, I've been seriously buying books for over 40 years.
0: Do you prefer physical hard copy books? I do,
1: but I've realized recently that uh, there are some real benefits to Kindle books. And it's not just that they're usually less expensive. They're very good for searching hmm. so you can search for anything you want in a Kindle book that may not be in the index oh. a regular book. And then also uh, publishers are now allowing Kindle citations. So this, that's a difference, you know, in this, this new edition is you'll find some Kindle citations.
0: Oh, really? Oh, well, they're a lot, they're a lot lighter too. <laughs> Kindle books. Yes, yeah, they are. So you, if, if you've ever moved books around, if you're a big book oh, nerd, yeah, yeah, it's, it's heavy.
1: No, but I still love the the hard copies and I have books that have so many memories built into them. Like my copy of Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Was There that I got when I was 19 years old. Wow. Saw it on the bookstore at the University of Oregon and that book, uh, people use this term too often, but that book really did change my life. It kind of set a pattern for my life to do apologetics and try to speak truth into the culture. And I have that very book. It has so many memories wow. involved with it. And so many uh, significant aspects of my life just come out of that book.
0: Do you take notes with pen or pencil in, pen your, in your book? I do. Which one I, pen?
1: I do both. I mean, it depends hmm. like uh, what I do with a lot of books is I'll make, an index in the inside of the book. So it's like my own index. So I'll say page seven, good comment on Marxism, page eight, good comment on whatever it is. And that way, uh, when I go and look at a book that I read many, many years ago, like I just did actually this afternoon, I was looking at D.T. Suzuki's book, Introduction to Zen Buddhism, which I read in 1981. And I had actually taken two pages of notes on that book. So I went back and opened it up because I've been writing about Buddhism lately. So that's a, a good skill or a good habit to develop is own your books, really use them to the full benefit by marking them up and making indexes, yeah. cross-references, things like that. It really helps.
0: How many books are you reading right now? I have no idea. <laughs> Over two dozen?
1: Well, I do so much writing and research, I'm always reading, but the book I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying is uh, Carl Truman's book called Strange New World, which is about the modern sense of the self. And it's kind of a a simplified version of his longer book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And that book is, both of those books are tremendous.
0: Is this a living author?
1: Yeah, yeah. Carl Truman, he teaches at Grove City College, I believe.
0: Did you say Strange New World?
1: Strange New World.
0: Strange New World, okay.
1: How we got the modern sense of the self and how it explains the uh, sexual insanity going on in our culture, which is a huge topic. But that's the one I'm most into right now.
0: How many books have you written? Um. I think <laughs> you have to stop and think. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think I think I guess it's for fifteen if you count one that I co- co-authored uh, a children's book that I co-authored.
0: Yeah, there's a there's another of your books right here. Oh, that's not it. Where is it? There, you have a little book called On Jesus. Yeah,
1: that's hard to find. It's so
0: small. <laughs> there it is. I have it. I uh, I keep this in my New Testament stash. Okay. Um, so this is a great little book on the philosophy, treating Jesus as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I referenced that book when we had uh Greg Gansel on Greg came on to do a, uh, an episode on Jesus versus Nietzsche, which is what oh. he's working on. So I mentioned that book. Now, when you decide you're going to write a book, what's the process that you go through? What's your writing process? Do you you get up early and drink coffee? Or do you, how do you you work? Do you work all night? You're a night owl?
1: I'm more of a night owl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have a real set schedule. I just get enthusiastic about an idea and then I try to find a publisher and it really varies. Um, I just wrote a book on... Critical race theory in three and a half months, basically, oh, wow. which will what, come out. What's that story. called? It's called "Fire in the Streets." Oh, uh, and that just flowed. I, I put in tremendous amount of time on that, and I on, enjoyed on it. Critical yeah.
0: race theory. Wow, that's yeah. Now, now that's interesting because that sounds like it's a political topic, but you teach at a seminary. Is there any? frowning on that commenting on things from a we'll seminary
1: find, we'll find out
0: <laughs> do you, what's the- your what's your view on commenting on politics as a christian As i think a lot of people are noticing this podcast and they're like you do a lot of like doctrine you're not afraid to wade into like the trinity and stuff and and other things you know nietzsche versus jesus christian apologetics and my thought is well you know easter is a big deal and i know that the state universities don't call it a big deal anymore but it used to be easter break yeah that's right and now it's spring break yeah it used to be christmas break and I just like, you know, I'm, I am feel like I'm acknowledging what's obvious that Jesus split time in half. It's still 2022, 2022 after what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not after the Big Bang. It's <laughs> after Jesus, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just there's so many things you can't talk about. You can't say I, I when I'm when I'm teaching. Well, I, I say it, but I break break rules and people don't like it. When I was at Cal State and I remember saying, you know, Some of this stuff, like, have a happy Christmas break, and it it would look at me. The the is the Muslim students loved it because they were like, yeah, it's so obvious for them. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. obvious it's Christmas break. They're not getting Ramadan off or Ram. You know, they they know that they're not getting what they're off. They they know, but it's like there's so many people that just seem to deny the Christian heritage or they they don't even know about it. You know they don't know why their post office isn't open on Sundays and stuff like that. So what do you, what do you, what do you how do you think about um, from a Christian perspective uh, politics? Oh, that's, that's a or big, commenting on politics. Topic. Everybody has politi- political views, but how do you? Yeah, I think certainly Christianity
1: has implications for all of life, including politics.
0: Um, it's kind of a down and dirty human activity. It. So it's like, it's like commenting on the sewage system or something, you know, it's like, I don't know. But I, it can also be kind of elevating too. I mean, politics is- Well, I think you need
1: important. to find what the most important issues are and then what you can say about those issues. For example, I went to the state Capitol a few weeks ago and gave a two-minute testimony against a pro-abortion bill. That passed. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. See, what's happening is that Roe v. Wade might be overturned in a few months by the Supreme Court. And if it is, then some states will be really conservative, like Texas and Florida, and other states will be very liberal. So people will travel from the conservative states to the liberal states to get abortions. Hmm. So the Democrats here in Colorado decided to pass a bill that would make it impossible for there to be any restrictions whatsoever, forever, on abortion in colorado that's what they wanted to do with this bill and the bill gotcha. says that the uh, the fertilized egg the embryo and the fetus they never used the word human never used human has wow. no uh fundamental or derivative rights whatsoever so i went and testified against that bill we had two minutes i read through my two minute written testimony. and But it the, the bill went through, all the Democrats voted for it, all the Republicans voted against it, and it's nothing less than barbaric. So I'm willing to stick my neck out on that, and I have been for 40 years on that issue.
0: Uh, do you think that Christianity entails the pro-life position on that?
1: I think it does, definitely. But you don't have to be a Christian to have a good pro-life argument or perspective. You just have to have a high view of what it means to be a human being. And if you believe that you are a human being from conception, uh, then the burden of proof should be on anybody who wants to end that life. Hmm. Uh, You don't have to have a Christian view that we're made in the image and likeness of God or appeal to scripture. But if you do, then we know that God's at work from the very beginning in conception. We're made in God's image from conception, and it's wrong to murder. So you've got the argument pretty much right there. But even if you're not a christian you just affirm some basic value to human life and then talk about what it means to be uh, a human humanity starts at conception there's no question about that you don't have a potential human you have a human with potential and you should give the benefit of the doubt to that living human life they say, not- say
0: that one more time you said some i like the way you said that you said you don't have a potential human you have a human with potential
1: exactly yeah yeah, and I got that line years and years ago from uh, a writer named Clifford Bejima, oh. it's called Abortion and Human Value, I believe it's called. But yeah, the way I go through it is that you hear a lot of nonsense, first of all, like, well, we don't know when life begins. Yes, we do. Human life begins at conception. So <laughs> don't have potential life, you have a life of potential. But we don't know when humanity begins. Yes, we do. Biology tells you that you join a species when you're conceived. So we don't have a potential human. We have a human with potential. So we definitely have a living human with potential. Now you can start arguing about personhood. That gets a little more complicated. I'd also say, though, that you don't have a potential person. You have a person with potential. So I think, you know, as a Christian, I need a good biblical argument the pro-life view and then i also need an argument that will appeal more broadly than to just christians so that's what i've been trying to do over the years so that's an issue where christians should definitely yeah. have a strong right, right. View. And,
0: and and where they can link arms with non-christians that that exactly. can get the argument right. now with critical race theory how did you come up with the idea to write that book
1: well uh it was really in the summer of 2020 with all the riots and all the attention being brought to those issues. And somebody, I wrote a Facebook post. I said, okay, I'm gonna talk about critical theory in a hundred words and I put it out there. And somebody at the Centennial Institute, which is a conservative think tank and activist group here in Colorado said, could you write an article on that for us? And I did. And then it just got hotter and hotter And I decided I wanted to write a book on it. And I came up with, uh, I think a good title, Fire in the Streets, and found a publisher, Salem Books. I've never published with them before, but they're very eager to get the book out there and they've turned it around. It'll come out in July. So we'll see what happens. But this is my first book when I've, I've taken a real strong conservative political stance on race and economics.
0: How do you understand the term conservative? What do you think that means when you use the term?
1: Yeah, well, when I mean like, let me ask you a question: Did the yeah,
0: conservatives I, end slavery?
1: Well, the, the terms of the debate were a lot different back then. If you want to call Abraham Lincoln a conservative, I'd say
0: <laughs>
1: I'd say yes. Um, but let me let me talk about it more broadly. I do talk about slavery in the book. But more broadly a conservative. Yes, you do.
0: Well, actually you do in this one too. You talk about racism in, in yeah. the apologetics book, which yeah. I made sure the students read that and they 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 were happy that it was in there.
1: Yeah. Some people think Christianity is is racist and it, it certainly is not. Um, but a conservative is somebody who believes that human beings are fallen, that you cannot create utopia through a civil government who believes in fundamental human rights that the state recognizes the state does not create. And a conservative also believes in trying to keep civil government as small as possible.
0: What are your sources Um, to define that term? What, what, how are you, what are you cobbling together to get that?
1: Oh, I think, I think essentially the declaration of independence and the constitution ultimately. But if you want to talk about writers, I think Russell Kirk was an excellent writer on what it means to be a conservative. Uh, the older term is classical liberal, actually, which doesn't okay. mean contemporary Classic. liberal or leftist at all.
0: These terms are so tricky because you're right. I mean, the term liberal doesn't even seem to be the same term that I grew up with. And I. Um, I'm younger than you, but I I grew up in Colorado. I went to public schools, went to Chatfield High School in Jefferson County. And I remember, you know, the conservative liberal debates that we had in high school uh, and then later. But it seemed like the word liberal, it's just like it doesn't even apply anymore. (laughs) It's just it's people don't even know what this means. These terms, these are so tricky. So like you're saying, a conservative is a type of a liberal.
1: Well, historically, the idea of a classical liberal is someone who, for instance, believes in free speech and freedom of religion Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. believes that the state is not the most important institution in society, in civil society of the family, the church, other organizations that make life. A place, you know, they help human flourishing and so on. And the thing yeah. that I'm so concerned about is statism, that the state has to regulate, control, and dictate everything. And that's the Biden administration. So I'm very much against that.
0: So as a Christian, it's just obvious to you that the state is way down here, God up here. <laughs> and in the realm of the world the way the reality is the state has a proper place and it's not what a lot of people think it should be or exactly. is yeah i think a lot of people think of the state or the government as almost god i mean they wouldn't say that but mm-hmm. a lot of my students don't seem to think of the government in any kind of critical way it's right. like you know, when they think of um, the one percent, we had to talk about the one percent. And I remember, and I taught in business departments, so it would come up. Uh, seniors in the business, like I, t- I talk, a, I taught a class for many years called Business Ethics and Public Policy. And so we would talk about capitalism versus socialism, and all the so- all sorts of policy wonk stuff like the minimum wage and the gender pay gap and all sorts of stuff, race yeah. and affirmative action, stuff like that. And, and the, the, the resentment of the 1% back then, this is even just seems like it's passe even now, but, but um, I, I remember saying, you know, the government's really the 1% because, and you don't even think about that. The government take, for example, Nevada, the government owns 85% of Nevada you know trump owns one block which is pretty big i mean in vegas but but you yeah. know the government is huge it's a trillionaire it's the only thing that can make money and actually can it really make money but um and it, it can in, yeah and it can enforce this with a gun it's got nuclear weapons you know and um uh, To not even think about the role of government and how it plays in flourishing. What I hear you saying when I'm reading this book, Christian apologetics, Mm. and even how you approach the, just the, I did, we didn't hear a lot about critical race theory, but just when you talk about abortion, what I heard was that you're concerned about human flourishing. Right, right. The conditions for human flourishing. And I know that a lot of people on campuses, they don't think that conservatives care about making the world better. Mm -hmm. And uh progressives, they want the world to be better. But I hear you saying you want the world better. Do you think you can we can make the world better? Do you think that there's any point in being involved in politics? Can we make the world better?
1: You can try. you can have solid principles and stay true to them and try to contribute where you're called to contribute. But the thing about conservatives is they don't have grand visions, you know, to eliminate poverty or to eliminate racism. Mm-hmm. You just work away at it the best you can, because often those grand plans to eliminate this or that actually make things worse. And that's where I think the constrained vision of humanity, as Thomas Sowell puts it, is so much wiser than the unconstrained view because you realize there are hard limits on what human beings can achieve before the second coming and you can do a heck of a lot of mischief trying to bring about heaven to earth you can create hell on earth like with the soviet union or any other failed marxist experiment
0: and and we can be on the on the lookout for that so christianity christian apologetics can actually train people to see the conditions for human flourishing the possibilities the real possibilities for advancing human flourishing in more realistic terms would you say that's fair yeah, say?
1: Because if christianity is true then it means that the christian way of life is overall the best way to live even if you inherit a certain suffering as a christian which you do that yeah, that suffering is worthwhile. And also, in the end, you have eternal life. So you want to be a good citizen and contribute to the welfare of the city where God has placed you. You want to be salt and light. You need to be willing to suffer for your faith and suffer for what's good. But God is our creator and our redeemer. So living his way has got to be the best for everybody in the long run. That just makes sense. That's logical.
0: Does it bother you? that it's been 2000 years since Jesus resurrected. I mean, do do you get the sense? Do you ever think God left, left us down here to just no wonder politics is so important to people? I mean, look at, look at what we're dealing with. We're just dealing with each other. (laughs) And, and, you know, so, so there's, there's going to be these power struggles Mm -hmm. and, Sometimes every once in a while I'll sit in church and I'll see everybody singing, and I'll feel like I'll feel this. I'll 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 think, hey, it's been a long time. Two thousand years is a long time. Mm-hmm. What in the world is going on? Why is God leaving us down here for so long?
1: Well, I go back to what Jesus said, where He said, "The gates of hell will not prevail against the church." So. Uh, God's message will get through. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done. And we don't know what the timing is. So we're just here to be faithful servants. But and yeah, you, you really I really
0: feel that you you're not yeah. just saying that you feel that you're authentic. No,
1: I do. Uh, you know, I'm 65 and I have more fire in my bones for the gospel and for Christ than I ever have. Even when you knew me when I was a lot younger, it's, this is true. It's important. Everybody needs to know, and we need to, you know, keep our hand to the plow and our hearts filled with the fire of truth i definitely believe that but you know as i get older i think you know come quickly lord jesus because <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, like when i read saint augustine for the first time at denver seminary when i was a student there with dr lewis i bet yeah probably um, i was at the old campus the new campus i don't know i don't have any memories at the new campus the old campus I have hardly any pictures from there. I didn't have a phone that had a camera, so I didn't take any pictures. It's kind of sad. But uh, do you think that St. Augustine, when he was writing back then, thought that, that you know, people will be reading him in 1600 years? <laughs> and so, so my thought, to, here's my question to you. What if this goes into an archive? It's some weird digital kind of archive that we can't even conceive of. And people like 1600 years from now are listening to this and doing their doctoral dissertations on, on the, these primary sources,
1: a Republican professor.
0: Yes. And you're, and maybe one copy of your book exists from <laughs> like, you know, it's not even, it's not even from this time period. It's, it's from awesome. a later time period, you know, I mean, and you know maybe, you know, from the, the nuclear ashes or whatever. And, do you think that that would be evidence against Christianity? Because it's like people might at that time think, why do, pe- why do people think that God Jesus is coming back? I mean, look at it. It's just us kids down here. I mean, we're, we keep screwing it up generation after generation. Doesn't it kind of weird you out to think of the possibility that 4,000 years from now? I mean, how long is too long? 5,000 years from now, people are still looking... You know, people are half robots at that point or whatever. I don't know if that's even possible, but they have robot arms, maybe not brains, maybe not hearts, but they have (laughs) what these science fiction kind of things are now reality. You know, well,
1: I, I have confidence that Christ will come again because the biblical record is so strong that God fulfills his promises. He did in bringing the Messiah and he did in terms of the gospel going out into the world. I mean, what were the odds that Christianity would be the largest religion in the world when you look at how it started in this obscure little group right. of Jewish people that are subjected by Rome? Mm-hmm. You know, so.
0: Well, look you know, at how I'm Mormonism not... spread. I'm just going to play. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to. The, the, the devil doesn't need an uh, a, a lawyer. Advocate. I'm not going to be devil's advocate, but I, I just um, I'm just uh Um, Helping the conversation along is how I'd prefer to say it. Um, You look at how the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, spread, and they're doing, they uh, appear to be doing great. I mean, they have like political control of a couple states, I think, (laughs) Utah and probably Idaho, and um, that's pretty good for Uh for.
1: Islam has grown tremendously. No,
0: I wasn't right. Giving, right, that's true. I
1: wasn't giving what's called the success argument by itself. Okay, but I'm saying that given.
0: So just so we know, we get the record clear. We're not saying that Mormonism. I guess I think they call Latter-day Saint. I yeah. grew up with a lot of Mormons, and then we just said Mormon back then. But some people are adamant. You have to say Latter-day Saint. That's fine whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, I have a lot of friends that are Mormons, So I I say this with all due respect and by the way, Republican friends. So, you know, I mean, we work together on a lot of things, Um, but there are serious differences, right. Uh, With, between with Islam, um, we can work together with Muslims on many things, but there's so serious doctrinal differences. Yeah. um, And, those two religions seem to to have been very successful and very strong and in, in growing so how do you you were saying you didn't give the success argument by itself yeah
1: i think if a religion is true and if god is behind it and god wants to reach the world with the saving truth that that religion will grow but i think that's a necessary condition i don't think that's sufficient because okay. we're also told that uh false religions will come and deceive many So when I defend Christianity, I've got a lot of different arguments that I use, not just uh, look at how successful it's been or look at how influential it's been. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. By any means,
0: you're interested in jazz. Uh, How is that? You've also written about it. And uh, how did you get interested in jazz and and what does that have to do with philosophy?
1: (laughs) Well. I got interested in jazz as a teenager. Um, I used to read this rock and roll magazine called Rolling Stone, which is still around, but they used to have a guy named Ralph J. Gleason who would write about jazz in Rolling Stone magazine. So I started buying jazz and jazz rock fusion and really loved it. And I actually do incorporate jazz into the way that I teach because I try to teach in a way that, uses improvisation on more mm. now i improvise a lot more with my graduate students because my undergrad students are a little bit intimidated i think and they're just trying to keep up with me <laughs> yeah but Wait, uh,
0: you have you have undergrad students
1: i'm doing a class at colorado christian university this term oh introduction to philosophy
0: i so I, I, like- I actually knew that but i have to pretend i didn't know that. Yeah, yeah just make just to be, make it interesting that's right yeah improv so I've read, I've i like that yes
1: um there's a website called all about jazz i think i've got 15 18 articles up there and uh, the category i write the most on is uh, the philosophy of jazz so i have an article there called john coltrane and the meaning of life and i do some apologetics in that
0: wait so the all about jazz this is a secular site yeah mm-hmm So what do they think about a Christian guy coming in there and talking about jazz far? They like it. Yeah, really? Wow. I don't get interesting.
1: I don't get paid, but I do have a platform. I gotcha. And some of those articles have been seen thousands and thousands of times. It's pretty amazing. Like that one jazz. And I think I've got one called John Coltrane and the meaning of life or something like that. I think that's seen like tens of thousands of views. So I try to have a well-integrated life. I don't like to have anything fragmentary, you know, so I bring jazz illustrations into my teaching and my writing. And I have a philosophy of jazz and philosophy of teaching that's influenced by jazz. And there's a local jazz club I really love here in town called Dazzle. And I know the, the folks, one of the guys that, actually the owner, I don't know him really well, but, I interact with him. Sometimes I introduce groups and I pray when I go there. I try to be a good Christian presence there. Do they favorite. serve alcohol? What do you think?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> but some people are listening to this and they're thinking, wait, okay, he's a religious that's, fanatic. He teaches show. at a seminary. Do you enjoy, enjoy, having alcohol?
1: I do on occasion.
0: What do you, yeah. what's your favorite drink to have? Is it beer? I like
1: I like craft some craft beers. Yeah, we have a lot of good craft beers here in Denver. Yeah, you do. I like a good oh. margarita too.
0: So, this uh this local club seems to be very <laughs> It's just amazing how I I'm just trying to imagine. So jazz. Do you play jazz?
1: no no
0: okay all right
1: so i was you... a garage drummer in high school but that's about it but i love jazz and i read about it and i study it and i
0: really enjoy talking to musicians it was because of you that i bought my first jazz vinyl album about seven years ago and i i just got it at barnes and noble and i i you know i know it's stupid barnes and Noble, but i over i'm actually i don't think i overpaid for that album uh miles davis
1: i got the kind of blue Was that it that's his classic
0: no no sorry sorry it was john coltrane sorry it was john coltrane i did buy miles davis used later and um i'm forgetting now i have so many jazz albums i can't remember which ones i i don't remember the names i just remember okay duke ellington i should get that not duke ellington um that i can't remember all the names but i i because i would started looking at it must have been something you wrote because i i wouldn't have known the names i'm not i'm, I'm a total idiot in terms of music but there's a really good used bookstore re- that's close to where we live mm-hmm. and they yeah. have albums all the time that come in oh, great. and so but um the the idea of of jazz and philosophy how when you say you have a philosophy of jazz, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think there's certain virtues to to jazz. Um, respect for tradition, but also highly prizing individuality and improvisation. Not just getting up and playing a solo, but group improvisation. So you have to listen to what the bass player playing saxophone. Everybody has to listen. That's what's called having big ears. Hmm. that that's a virtue listening to other people uh, responding to what they're saying or what they're playing and i love the music it has a beautiful history i I have an article coming out in modern age about how african americans have won a lot of rights and dignity through music especially through jazz people like duke ellington john coltrane miles davis billy Holiday, things like that so it's, it's just fascinating, culturally, in terms of uh, racial dignity, the, the human spirit of creativity and innovation. And sadly, jazz is just not that popular in America today. It's a very tiny percentage of the music market. And if you have a good jazz club or a couple of good jazz clubs in a big city, you're, you're doing well. But we have one excellent one here in Denver called Dazzle, which has been around for about twenty-five years. And it they is, have
0: live music, or is it absolutely? Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, they have so work. they're not just playing records. Oh no, no, no,
1: they're they're a performance listening venue. So, wow, you visit Dazzle, they will introduce the group and they'll say, "We are a listening room, so we ask you to turn off your cell phones and keep conversations to a minimum."
0: Oh wow! And so is it packed? <laughs> it depends
1: on the depends on the group, yeah, it does pretty well usually,
0: well, if they serve alcohol, then they can make some money there.
1: They do that, I'm yeah, assuming, and, and they have good food too so.
0: um, okay, I think that's all I got there uh that's that's just great. I love the jazz i it was Duke Ellington. I do have that guy I have. I have a lot of the names I have because I just would see them and I would get it and I would listen to it immediately. And then I have, I have have such a huge stack now that (laughs) I've forgotten what I have, but some of them, I'm sure that they're not made anymore. So Uh, um, you play records, do you have a phonograph? Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a record player. Do you have a record player?
1: Yeah. The same one I had in high school.
0: Well, I don't (laughs) necessarily, I don't think I have a very good one. I just got just a, a cheap one. You know, do you have a really expensive one? Pretty good. It, yeah, I've got a... good. Uh, some of the records when you buy them for like a dollar, they skip a little bit and they don't play well. Does that happen to you?
1: I usually try to check them out before I buy them. Okay. We've got some very nice used vinyl stores here in Denver that I frequent quite often. Yeah, I'm jealous.
0: Yeah. Uh, how much do uh, the albums go for the used albums? A good one.
1: Oh, they usually between six and ten dollars it depends might be less sometimes you can get some great finds for four or five bucks
0: that's what fun. what do you recommend someone if they wants to get into listening to records um what kind of record player should they be on the lookout for is there a specific kind
1: Well, I, uh, no i mean the the record player i use the most is a pioneer but i bought it in
0: four (laughs) pioneer man i haven't heard that in a long time
1: yeah it's held up all these years.
0: (laughs) that brings me back Mm -hmm. that's great well um the book is called christian apologetics is it still a comprehensive case for biblical faith
1: same subtitle and i'll hold it up again yeah this is the new edition
0: it does not have pictures in it
1: one chart that's
0: it no pie graphs no statistics nope. no but it's it's got lots what's your favorite part of the book
1: well i think now maybe the two chapters on the atonement because that's the heart of christianity christ died to take away our sins to uh, pay the penalty we couldn't pay to free us from the dominion of satan and darkness and I got very deep into it in those two chapters, and it was very rewarding and I think significant. So I'm very excited about those two chapters. I'm glad I wrote them.
0: I think it's really cool that you have your colleagues contributing to it, Rick Hess and Greg Blomberg. Yeah, this is a professors of mine as well. And
1: right, this is a Denver seminary book.
0: Yeah, you're really drawing from really good resources. I remember Hess he he had apologetic concerns woven throughout his material when he was yep. teaching the old testament and i really appreciate he really knows what he's talking about too phd from hebrew, hebrew union college um, um seemed to know the, the archaeology what's up
1: both of them are utterly brilliant
0: oh yeah craig blomberg of so course i could, you know i could yeah. fake
1: it and write about the old testament and the new testament but <laughs> i wanted to give it over to them well that
0: was such a great thing i that when i saw that i was like this is irreplaceable here uh craig blomberg of course wrote i think his first book was the historical reliability of the gospels which is still is now a classic mm-hmm. i think
1: so, yeah second edition mm-hmm.
0: well um anything else you wanted to talk about <laughs> before we let we covered, you go
1: we covered quite a bit here
0: yeah not quite we we try to do
1: length but uh,
0: (laughs) no not quite but we hopefully went deeper than he goes did you say joe rogan
1: i did yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah. i thought that's what you said
1: we're not at the three and a half hour
0: is is uh, he is that how long he goes
1: i I think he did a three and a half hour with jordan peterson
0: yeah that doesn't surprise me with him that would be a lot and i i always hesitate to i'm very curious and i know that uh a lot of people have reached out to me and they've said that they listen uh, to the whole thing as they're driving and stuff like that and they like that that it's not rushed and they like they think that there's a lot of people that don't know about us yet that will want to check us out because so many people don't like the overly produced rushed kind of, you know, okay, we're going to a break now, you know, and then, you know, it seems like some people are, they, they, they shift right there and they start talking about some pillow or, or some, you know, s- some product and some gizmo and doodad and, you know, I'm like, wait, we were just talking about something else. It's hard to keep up, but um, you, I think you're a really good example of, of a very thoughtful approach to christianity the the life of the mind the the uh, the curiousness of the world the whole world not just your faith but how it how to see the whole world um and you're patient with people i've seen you listen carefully with people and just spend time with people and um and you obviously have interests in many different things like jazz and and stuff like that. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and uh, give us some things to think about on Easter.
1: Well, I thanks so much for having me. And I think of what we say in my Anglican church every week. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So that's the message of Easter.
0: What a great thing to end on. Dr. Douglas Groteis, thank you for joining us for this Easter episode. You're welcome. Thank you.